Volume 5, Chapter 12, Part 1 of Cecilia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Amanda Hindman. Cecilia, Memoirs of an Heiress by Frances Burney. Volume 5, Chapter 12, A Man of Business, Part 1. When they entered Vauxhall, Mr. Harrel endeavoured to dismiss his moroseness, and affecting his usual gaiety, struggled to recover his spirits. But the effort was vain. He could neither talk nor look like himself, and though from time to time he resumed his air of wanted levity, he could not support it, but drooped and hung his head in evident despondency. He made them take several turns in the midst of the company, and walked so fast that they could hardly keep pace with him, as if he hoped by exercise to restore his vivacity. But every attempt failed. He sunk and grew sadder, and muttering between his teeth, This is not to be borne, he hastily called to a waiter to bring him a bottle of champagne. Of this he drank glass after glass, notwithstanding Cecilia, as Mrs. Harrel had not courage to speak, entreated him to forbear. He seemed, however, not to hear her, but when he had drunk what he thought necessary to revive him, he conveyed them into an unfrequented part of the garden, and as soon as they were out of sight of all but a few stragglers, he suddenly stopped, and in great agitation said, My chaise will soon be ready, and I shall take of you a long farewell. All my affairs are unprofitous to my speedy return. The wine is now mounting into my head, and perhaps I may not be able to say much by and by. I fear I have been cruel to you, Priscilla, and I begin to wish I had spared you this parting scene. Yet let it not be banished your remembrance, but think of it when you are tempted to such mad folly as has ruined us. Mrs. Harrel wept too much to make any answer, and turning from her to Cecilia, Oh, madam, he cried, to you, indeed I dare not speak. I have used you most unworthily, but I pay for it all. I ask you not to pity or forgive me. I know it is impossible you should do either. No, cried the softened Cecilia, it is not impossible. I do both at this moment, and I hope. Do not hope, interrupted he. Be not so angelic, for I cannot bear it. Benevolence like yours should have fallen into worthier hands. But come, let us return to the company. My head grows giddy, but my heart is still heavy. I must make them more fit companions for each other. He would then have hurried them back, but Cecilia, endeavouring to stop him, said, You do not mean, I hope, to call for more wine. Why not? cried he, with affected spirit. What, shall we not be merry before we part? Yes, we will all be merry, for if we are not, how shall we part at all? Oh, not without a struggle. Then stopping, he paused a moment, and casting off the mask of levity, said, in accents the most solemn, I commit this packet to you giving a sealed parcel to Cecilia. Had I written it later, its contents had been kinder to my wife. For now the hour of separation approaches, ill-will and resentment subside. Poor Priscilla, I am sorry, but you will succour her, I am sure you will. Oh, had I known you myself before this infatuation, bright pattern of all goodness! But I was devoted, a ruined wretch before ever you entered my house unworthy to be saved unworthy that virtues such as yours should dwell under the same roof with me but come come now or my resolution will waver and i shall not go at last but what is this packet cried cecilia and why do you give it to me no matter no matter you will know by and by the chaise waits and i must gather courage to be gone 
He then pressed forward, answering neither to remonstrance nor entreaty from his frightened companions. The moment they returned to the covered walk, they were met by Mr. Marriott. Mr. Harrel, starting, endeavoured to pass him, but when he approached and said, You have sent, sir, no answer to my letter, he stopped, and in a tone of forced politeness said, No, sir, but I shall answer it to-morrow, and to-night I hope you will do me the honour of supping with me. Mr. Marriott, looking openly at Cecilia as his inducement, though evidently regarding himself as an injured man, hesitated a moment, yet accepted the invitation. "'To supper!' cried Mrs. Harrel. "'What, here?' "'To supper!' repeated Cecilia. "'And how are we to get home?' "'Think not of that these two hours,' answered he. "'Come, let us look for a box.' Cecilia then grew quite urgent with him to give up a scheme which must keep them so late, and Mrs. Harrel repeatedly exclaimed, "'Indeed people will think it very odd to see us here without any party.' But he heeded them not, and perceiving at some distance Mr. Morice, he called out to him to find them a box, for the evening was very pleasant, and the gardens were so much crowded that no accommodation was unseized. "'Sir,' cried Mr. Morice, with his usual readiness, "'I'll get you one if I turn out ten old aldermen sucking custards.' Just after he was gone, a fat, sleek, vulgar-looking man, dressed in a bright purple coat with a deep red waistcoat, and a wig bulging far from his head, with small round curls, while his plump face and person announced plenty and good living, and an air of defiance spoke the fullness of his purse, strutted boldly up to Mr. Harrel, and accosting him in a manner that shewed some diffidence of his reception, but none of his right, said, Sir, your humble servant, and made a bow first to him and then to the ladies. "'Sir, yours,' replied Mr. Harrel scornfully, and without touching his hat, he walked quickly on. His fat acquaintance, who seemed but little disposed to be offended with impunity, instantly replaced his hat on his head, and with a look that implied, "'I'll fit you for this,' put his hands to his sides, and following him said, "'Sir, I must make bold to beg the favour of exchanging a few words with you.' "'Aye, sir,' answered Mr. Harrel, "'come to me to-morrow, and you shall exchange as many as you please.' "'Nothing like the time present, sir,' answered the man. "'As for to-morrow, I believe it intends to come no more, "'for I have heard of it any time these three years. "'I mean no reflection, sir, but let every man have his right. "'That's what I say, and that's my notion of things.' "'Mr. Harrel, with a violent execration, "'asked what he meant by dunning him at such a place as Box Hall. "'One place, sir,' he replied, "'is as good as another place. "'For so as what one does is good, "'tis no matter for where it may be.' A man of business never wants a counter if he can meet with a joint-stool. For my part, I'm all for a clear conscience, and no bills without receipts to them. And if you were all for broken bones, cried Mr. Harrel angrily, I would oblige you with them without delay. Sir, cried the man, equally provoked, this is talking quite out of character, for as to broken bones, there's ne'er a person in all England, gentle nor simple, can say he's a right to break mine, for I'm not a person of that sort but a man of as good property as another man, and there's ne'er a customer I have in the world that's more his own man than myself. "'Lord bless me, Mr. Hobson,' cried Mrs. Harrel, "'don't follow us in this manner. If we meet any of our acquaintance, they'll think us half crazy.' "'Ma'am,' answered Mr. Hobson, again taking off his hat, "'if I'm treated with proper respect, no man will behave more generous than myself.' But if I'm affronted, all I can say is, it may go harder with some folks than they think for. Here a little mean-looking man, very thin and almost bent double with perpetual cringing, came up to Mr. Hobson, and pulling him by the sleeve, whispered, yet loud enough to be heard, It's surprisable to me, Mr. Hobson, you can behave so out of the way. 
For my part, perhaps I've as much my due as another person, but I dares to say I shall have it when it's convenient, and I'd scorn for to mislest a gentleman when he's taking his pleasure. Lord bless me, cried Mrs. Harrel, what shall we do now? Here's all Mr. Harrel's creditors coming upon us. Do, cried Mr. Harrel, reassuming an air of gaiety. Why, give them all a supper, to be sure. Come, gentlemen, will you favour me with your company to supper? Sir, answered Mr. Hobson, somewhat softened by this unexpected invitation, I've supped this hour and more, and had my glass too, for I'm as willing to spend my money as another man, only what I say is this, I don't choose to be cheated, for that's losing one's substance and getting no credit. However, as to drinking another glass, or such a matter as that, I'll do it with all the pleasure in life. And as to me, said the other man, whose name was Simpkins, and whose head almost touched the ground by the profoundness of his reverence, I can't upon no account think of taking the liberty, but if I may just stand without, I'll make bold to go so far as just for to drink my humble duty to the ladies in a cup of cider. Are you mad, Mr. Harrel? are you mad? cried his wife. To think of asking such people as these to supper, what will everybody say? Suppose any of our acquaintance should see us. I am sure I shall die with shame. Mad, repeated he, no, not mad, but merry. Oh, ho, Mr. Morice, why have you been so long? What have you done for us? Why, sir, answered Morice, returning with a look somewhat less elated than he had set out. The gardens are so full, there is not a box to be had. But I hope we shall get one for all that, for I observed one of the best boxes in the garden, just to the right there, with nobody in it but that gentleman who made me spill the teapot at the Pantheon. So I made an apology and told him the case, but he only said, Huh, and hey? So then I told it all over again, but he served me just the same, for he never seems to hear what one says till one's just done, and then he begins to recollect one's speaking to him. However, though I repeated it all over and over again, I could get nothing from him but just that humph and hay. But he is so remarkably absent that I dare say if we all go and sit down round him, he won't know a word of the matter. Won't he? cried Mr. Harrel. Have at him, then. And he followed Mr. Morice, though Cecilia, who now half suspected that all was to end in a mere idle frolic, warmly joined her remonstrances to those of Mrs. Harrel, which were made with the utmost but with fruitless earnestness. Mr. Meadows, who was seated in the middle of the box, was lolloping upon the table with his customary ease, and picking his teeth with his usual inattention to all about him. The intrusion, however, of so large a party, seemed to threaten his insensibility with unavoidable disturbance, though imagining they meant but to look in at the box and pass on, he made not at their first approach any alteration in his attitude or employment. "'See, ladies,' cried the officious Morice, "'I told you there was room, and I am sure this gentleman will be very happy to make way for you, if it's only out of the good nature to the waiters, as he is neither eating nor drinking, nor doing anything at all. So if you two ladies will go in at that side, Mr. Harrel and that other gentleman, pointing to Mr. Marriott, may go to the other, and then I'll sit by the ladies here and those other two gentlemen.' Here Mr. Meadows, raising himself from his reclining posture, and staring Morice in the face, gravely said, "'What's all this, sir?' Morice, who expected to have arranged the whole party without a question, and who understood so little of modish airs as to suspect neither affectation nor trick in the absence of mind and indolence of manners which he observed in Mr. Meadows, was utterly amazed by this interrogatory, and staring himself in return, said, "'Sir, you seem so thoughtful, I did not think. 
I did not suppose you would have taken any notice of just a person or two coming into the box. Did not you, sir, said Mr. Meadows very coldly. Why, then, now you do. Perhaps you'll be so obliging as to let me have my own box to myself. And then again he returned to his favorite position. Certainly, sir, said Marice, bowing, I am sure I did not mean to disturb you, for you seemed so lost in thought that I am sure I did not much believe you would have seen us. Why, sir, said Mr. Hobson, strutting forward, if I may speak my opinion, I should think, as you happen to be quite alone, a little agreeable company would be no such bad thing. At least, that's my notion. And if I might take the liberty, said the smooth-tongued Mr. Simpkins, for to put in a word, I should think the best way would be, if the gentleman has no particular objection, for me just to stand somewhere hereabouts, and so, when he's had what he's a mind to, be ready for to pop in at one side as he comes out at the t'other. For if one does not look pretty cute such a full night as this, a box is whipped away before one knows where one is. No, 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 cried Mrs. Harrell impatiently. Let us neither sup in this box nor in any other. Let us go away entirely. Indeed we must. Indeed we ought, cried Cecilia. It is utterly improper we should stay. Pray let us be gone immediately. Mr. Harrell paid not the least regard to these requests, but Mr. Meadows, who could no longer seem unconscious of what passed, did himself so much violence as to arise and ask if the ladies would be seated. I said so, cried Marice triumphantly. I was sure there was no gentleman but would be happy to accommodate two such ladies. The ladies, however, far from happy in being so accommodated, again tried their utmost influence in persuading Mr. Harrell to give up this scheme. But he would not hear them. He insisted upon their going into the box, and, extending the privilege which Mr. Meadows had given, he invited without ceremony the whole party to follow. Mr. Meadows, though he seemed to think this a very extraordinary encroachment, had already made such an effort from his general languor in the repulse he had given to Marice, that he could exert himself no further, but after looking around him with mingled vacancy and contempt, he again seated himself, and suffered Marice to do the honours without more opposition. Marice, but too happy in the office, placed Cecilia next to Mr. Meadows, and would have made Mr. Marriott her other neighbour, but she insisted upon not being parted from Mrs. Harrell, and therefore, as he chose to sit also by that lady himself, Mr. Marriott was obliged to follow Mr. Harrell to the other side of the box. Mr. Hobson, without further invitation, placed himself comfortably in one of the corners, and Mr. Simpkins, who stood modestly for some time in another, finding the further encouragement for which be waited was not likely to arrive, dropped quietly into his seat without it. Supper was now ordered, and while it was preparing, Mr. Harrell sat totally silent, but Mr. Meadows thought proper to force himself to talk with Cecilia, though she could well have dispensed with such an exertion of his politeness. "'Do you like this place, ma'am?' "'Indeed, I hardly know. I never was here before.' no wonder the only surprise is that anybody can come to it at all to see a set of people walking after nothing strolling about without view or object tis strange don't you think so ma'am yes i believe so said cecilia scarce hearing him oh it gives me the vapours the horrors cried he to see what poor creatures we all are taking the pleasure even from the privation of it forcing ourselves into exercise and toil when we might at least have the indulgence of sitting still and reposing Lord, sir, cried Marice, don't you like walking? 
Walking, cried he, I know nothing so humiliating. To see a rational being in such a mechanical motion, with no knowledge upon what principles he proceeds, but plodding on, one foot before another, without even any consciousness which is first or how either. Sir, interrupted Mr. Hobson, I hope you won't take it amiss if I make bold to tell my opinion, for my way is this, let every man speak his maxim. But what I say as to this matter is this, if a man must always be stopping to consider what foot he is standing upon, he had need have little to do. Being the right does as well as the left, and the left as well as the right, and that, sir, I think is a fair argument. Mr. Meadows deigned no other answer to this speech than a look of contempt. I fancy, sir, said Morice, you are fond of riding, for all your good horsemen like nothing else. Riding, exclaimed Mr. Meadows. Oh, barbarous! Wrestling and boxing are polite arts to it. Trusting to the discretion of an animal less intellectual than ourselves, a sudden spring may break all our limbs, a stumble may fracture our skulls, and what is the inducement? To get melted with heat, killed with fatigue, and covered with dust? Miserable infatuation! Do you love riding, ma'am? "'Yes, very well, sir.' "'I am glad to hear it,' cried he, with a vacant smile. "'You are quite right. I am entirely of your opinion.' Mr. Simpkins, now, with a look of much perplexity, yet rising and bowing, said, "'I don't mean, sir, to be so rude as to put in my oar, but if I did not take you wrong, I am sure just now I thought you seemed for to make no great count of writing, and yet now, all of the sudden, one would think you was a-speaking up for it.' "'Why, sir,' cried Mr. Morice, "'if you neither like riding nor walking, "'you can have no pleasure at all but only in sitting.' "'Sitting,' repeated Mr. Meadows, with a yawn, "'oh, worse and worse! "'It dispirits me to death. "'It robs me of all fire and life, "'weakens circulation, and destroys elasticity.' "'Pray then, sir,' said Morice, "'do you like any better to stand?' "'To stand? "'Oh, intolerable! "'The most unmeaning thing in the world. "'One had better be made a mummy.' "'Why, then, pray, sir,' said Mr. Hobson, "'let me ask the favour of you to tell us what it is you do like.' Mr. Meadows, though he stared him full in the face, began picking his teeth without making any answer. "'You see, Mr. Hobson,' said Mr. Simpkins, "'the gentleman has no mind for to tell you, but if I may take the liberty just to put in, I think if he neither likes walking, nor riding, nor sitting, nor standing, I take it he likes nothing.' "'Well, sir,' said Morice, "'but here comes supper, and I hope you will like that. "'Pray, sir, may I help you to a bit of this ham?' Mr. Meadows, not seeming to hear him, suddenly, and with an air of extreme weariness, arose and without speaking to anybody, abruptly made his way out of the box. Mr. Harrel, now starting from the gloomy reverie into which he had sunk, undertook to do the honours of the table, insisting with much violence upon helping everybody, calling for more provisions, and struggling to appear in high spirits and good humour. In a few minutes, Captain Aresby, who was passing by the box, stopped to make his compliments to Mrs. Harrel and Cecilia. "'What a concourse!' he cried, casting up his eyes with an expression of half-dying fatigue. "'Are you not accablé for my part?' i hardly respire i have really hardly ever had the honour of being so obsédé before we can make very good room sir said morice if you choose to come in yes said mr simpkins obsequiously standing up i am sure the gentleman will be very welcome to take my place for i did not mean for to sit down only just to look agreeable by no means sir answered the captain i shall be quite a desespoir if i derange anybody 
Sir, said Mr. Hobson, I don't offer you my place, because I take it for granted, if you had a mind to come in, you would not stand upon ceremony. For what I say is, let every man speak his mind, and then we shall all know how to conduct ourselves. That's my way, and let any man tell me a better. The captain, after looking at him with a surprise not wholly unmixed with horror, turned from him without making any answer, and said to Cecilia, And how long, ma'am, have you tried this petrifying place? An hour, two hours, I believe, she answered. Really, and nobody here. Assez de monde. But nobody here. A blanc potot. Sir, said Mr. Simpkins, getting out of the box that he might bow with more facility, I humbly crave pardon for the liberty, but if I understood right, you said something of a blank? Pray, sir, if I may be so free, has there been anything of the nature of a lottery, or a raffle in the garden, or the like of that? Sir, said the captain, regarding him from head to foot, I am quite assommé that I cannot comprehend your allusion. Sir, I ask pardon, said the man, bowing still lower. I only thought, if in case it should not be above half a crown, or such a matter as that, I might perhaps stretch a point once in a way. The captain, more and more amazed, stared at him again, but not thinking it necessary to take any further notice of him, he inquired of Cecilia if she meant to stay late. I hope not, she replied. I have already stayed later than I wished to do. Really, said he, with an unmeaning smile, well, that is as hard a thing as I have the malheur to know. For my part, I make it a principle not to stay long in these semi-barbarous places, for after a certain time they bore me to that degree I am quite abîmé. I shall, however, do mon possible to have the honour of seeing you again. And then, with a smile of yet greater insipidity, he protested he was reduced to despair in leaving her, and walked on. "'Pray, ma'am, if I may be so bold,' said Mr. Hobson, "'what countryman may that gentleman be?' "'An Englishman, I suppose, sir,' said Cecilia. "'An Englishman, ma'am,' said Mr. Hobson. "'Why, I could not understand one word in ten that came out of his mouth.' "'Why, indeed,' said Mr. Simpkins, "'he has a mighty particular way of speaking, "'for I'm sure I thought I could have sworn he said something of a blank, "'or to that amount, but I could make nothing of it "'when I come to ask him about it.' Let every man speak to be understood, cried Mr. Hobson. That's my notion of things, for as to all those fine words that nobody can make out, I hold them to be of no use. Suppose a man was to talk in that manner when he's doing business, what would be the upshot? Who'd understand what he meant? Well, that's the proof. What itn't fit for business, itn't of no value. That's my way of judging, and that's what I go upon. He said some other things, rejoined Mr. Simpkins, that I could not make out very clear, only I had no mind to ask any more questions, for fear of his answering me something I should not understand. But as well as I could make it out, I thought I heard him say, There was nobody here. What he could mean by that, I can't pretend for to guess, for I'm sure the garden is so stock full, that if there was to come many more, I don't know where they could cram em. I took notice of it at the time, said Mr. Hobson, for it in many things are lost upon me. And to tell you the truth, I thought he had been making pretty free with his bottle, by his seeing no better. Bottle, cried Mr. Harrel, a most excellent hint, Mr. Hobson. Come, let us all make free with the bottle. He then called for more wine, and insisted that everybody should pledge him. Mr. Marriott and Mr. Morice made not any objection, and Mr. Hobson and Mr. Simpkins consented with much delight. Mr. Harrel now grew extremely unruly, the wine he had already drunk being thus powerfully aided, and his next project was to make his wife and Cecilia follow his example. 
Cecilia, more incensed than ever to see no preparation made for his departure, and all possible pains taken to unfit him for setting out, refused him with equal firmness and displeasure, and lamented, with the bitterest self-reproaches, the consent which had been forced from her to be present at a scene of such disorder. But Mrs. Harrel would have opposed him in vain, had not his attention been called off to another object. This was Sir Robert Floyer, who, perceiving the party at some distance, no sooner observed Mr. Marriott in such company, than advancing to the box with an air of rage and defiance, he told Mr. Harrel he had something to say to him. "'Eh?' cried Harrel. "'Say to me, and so have I to say to you. Come amongst us and be merry. Here, make room, make way, sit close, my friends.' Sir Robert, who now saw he was in no situation to be reasoned with, stood for a moment silent, and then, looking round the box and observing Messrs. Hobson and Simkins, he exclaimed aloud, "'Why, what queer party have you got into? Who the devil have you picked up here?' Mr. Hobson, who to the importance of lately acquired wealth, now added the courage of newly drunk champagne, stoutly kept his ground without seeming at all conscious he was included in this interrogation but mr simkins who had still his way to make in the world and whose habitual servility would have resisted a larger drought was easily intimidated he again therefore stood up and with the most cringing respect offered the baronet his place who taking neither of the offer nor offerer the smallest notice still stood opposite to mr harrel waiting for some explanation Mr. Harrel, however, who now grew really incapable of giving any, only repeated his invitation that he would make one among them. "'One among you?' cried he angrily, and pointing to Mr. Hobson. "'Why, you don't fancy I'll sit down with a bricklayer?' "'A bricklayer?' said Mr. Harrel. "'Ay, sure, and a hosier, too. Sit down, Mr. Simpkins. Keep your place, man.' Mr. Simpkins most thankfully bowed, but Mr. Hobson, who could no longer avoid feeling the personality of this reflection, boldly answered, "'Sir, you may sit down with a worse man any day in the week. I have done nothing I'm ashamed of, and no man can say to me, why did you so? I don't tell you, sir, what I'm worth. No one has a right to ask. I only say three times five is fifteen. That's all.' "'Why, what the devil, you impudent fellow!' cried the haughty baronet. "'You don't presume to mutter, do you?' "'Sir,' answered Mr. Hobson very hotly, "'I shan't put up with abuse from no man. "'I've got a fair character in the world, "'and wherewithal to live by my own liking. "'And what I have is my own, "'and all I say is, let every one say the same, "'for that's the way to fear no man and face the devil.' "'What do you mean by that fellow?' cried Sir Robert. "'Fellow, sir, this is talking know-how. "'Do you think a man of substance that's got above the world "'is to be treated like a little scrubby apprentice? "'Let every man have his own. "'That's always my way of thinking, and this I can say for myself. "'I have as good a right to shoe my head where I please "'as ever a member of Parliament in all England, "'and I wish everybody here could say as much.' "'Sir Robert,' fury starting into his eyes, was beginning an answer, but Mrs. Harrel with terror, and Cecilia with dignity, calling upon them both to forbear. The baronet desired Maurice to relinquish his place to him, and seating himself next to Mrs. Harrel, gave over the contest. End of chapter 12, part 1 Recorded by Amanda Hindman in Glen, Mississippi www.livinginbooks.blogspot.com